Demons of Magic, the show where I get into the minds of some of the world's best magic players. My guests and I talk about Magic the Gathering, but the game is just the starting point. The goal of the show is to highlight the players' stories, interests, and passions. This is not a magic strategy show. It is 100% focused on the players themselves. It is my belief that every person has a great story to tell, and my goal is to bring it out of them. I hope that you will enjoy these free-flowing conversations. In our first episode, I talked to Jarvis Yu. Jarvis is an extremely accomplished player in the Magic Professional Circuit, with countless Pro Tour and Grand Prix appearances. Recently, he won Grand Prix Seattle in November 2015. That's right, Jarvis won the whole thing. For an event with over 2,000 players, that is no easy feat. He's been playing the game for a number of years and is one of the fiercest competitors around. Jarvis and I talk about his beginnings in Magic and his progression into competitive play. We discuss his mental approach to the game and how his math background has helped him excel. Along the way, Jarvis shares some incredible stories and learnings that he's had while playing the game. He is definitely someone who possesses an incredible work ethic. But beyond the hard work, Jarvis's ability to reflect and generalize through experiences has allowed him to achieve great things in the game. Whether you are a casual or ultra-competitive player, there is plenty of advice here that will help you think about the game differently and for the better. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jarvis. All right, so um, yeah, welcome to the show. So today I have a guest, a man who needs almost no introduction he is one of the premier players in competitive magic. He's got more uh, Pro Tour appearances than I will ever have in my lifetime. He's uh, won a couple. He's he's been to a couple of GPs. Most recently, he's won the prestigious Legacy GP in Seattle in 2015. So I'm super excited to introduce uh, Jarvis Yu. So Jarvis, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you were expecting that. I just kind of thought, oh, you know, that yeah. might be the best way to to do it. Uh, but actually, yeah. I didn't know how many um, uh, pro tour appearances you made. It seemed like from our Facebook conversations that there were a lot. So, how how many are there actually? <laughs> uh, so the last one I was at Madrid was my eighth appearance, and I'm currently qualified for. Honolulu in the fall, but not uh, Sydney, which is the last Pro Tour of this year. I'm qualified for Honolulu off of silver level status currently, but I'm trying to get to gold to be qualified for Sydney as well. So what's the gap for you now between silver and gold qualification or status? So uh, it's only three Pro Points, except all my Grand Prix slots are filled with finishes. I don't know if you're aware of how the system works. Uh, but no, basically, yeah, you can fill me in, definitely. Okay, so uh, you basically have your top six Grand Prix finishes count towards pro points for pro-level status. So I have an eight-pointer from the GP1, a four-pointer from Grand Prix Washington, D.C., where our team got eighth, a three-pointer from going 12-3 and three at New York City, and a bunch of two-pointers. So, in order for me to actually gain any pro points, I have to finish 12th through or better. So, it's kind of 
an awkward sort of first world world problem scenario <laughs> that I've I've been to so many Grand Prix and done reasonably well, but not well enough to acquire gold. Mm. So it it sounds like a high pressure situation, right? Because you want to hit gold, but I mean, it's basically you do the calculation and you have to finish like in the top, which is not easy for any large scale events. Am I right? Yeah, uh, it is, uh, you know, stressful, but I've also, uh, I've thought about this a lot. If I don't get it this year, I'm just going to uh, step back a bit and play a little bit less and focus on other things. So I'm just going to ride it out and see what happens. I don't believe in stressing out about this sort of thing. I think it leads to a very unhealthy sort of lifestyle. So would you say that uh, for most of your playing career, you've been, um, you've had a very like non-stressed mindset when you prepare for and play in events, uh, or, or would you say it's something that you've developed over time? I I think it's sort of a odd uh, cultural thing that my parents sort of put into me. They were always like, you should work hard, but even if you work hard and you do somewhat poorly, you shouldn't get upset about it as long as you've tried your best which is actually pretty contrary to most Asian-American families, I think. Uh, it's it's kind of weird reflecting on that right now, I suppose. Oh, no, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm also, also have Asian background and I can, I can relate to the fact that that seems out of the ordinary for sure, so. Yeah, I think it's, uh, my parents were much more laid back than the a- average Asian American family in the states. Uh, I mean, I did end up going to a pretty high caliber college, so I guess they were okay with that, and you know, finishing grad school. But uh, after that, yet yeah, I don't know. It, it's just very different than what I know other Asian Americans have experienced. So mm-hmm. I try to take things a little bit re- easier. I mean, I do like to win, I do like to compete, and I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. <laughs> Excellent. So maybe we can step back a little bit. Uh, this is a perfect segue. Uh, I kind of want to get, because I mean, you and I sort of knew each other online. Uh, this is also a great way for me to learn. I would love to know, kind of like going back in time, um, I know that you're in Maryland right now in the United States. Um, can you briefly talk about maybe how you grew up and what it's been like for you as a as a kid in the U.S. Uh, you know, and you know, basically go back in time a little bit and just talk about um, the earliest experiences you can remember and maybe it, when you first started playing Magic, like from being a kid to playing your first game. Okay, that um, I was actually born in Columbia, South Carolina, and. We didn't actually stay there very long because uh, my father and my mother, my father was teaching at University of South Carolina, but the problem was there weren't really a lot of Chinese people in South Carolina. So my father took a job in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, teach or uh, working at the National Institutes of Health, which is a U.S. agency, you know, for health or like health and health research. Uh, there, once I got to middle school, 
other people were playing Magic in middle school. I'm sure you know what it's like. Uh, and I looked at the cards, and I'm like, that seems pretty sweet. So my parents took me to a card store at some point, and I think I bought either a revised or a 4th edition starter deck. I looked through it and looked through the rule book. Kind of put it away for a while, but at some point started playing, you know, with kids during lunch. Uh, and that's how I got into the game. Uh, in terms... Sorry. Oh, no, ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, that's that's awesome. I didn't know that you started uh, with Revised. Uh, do you remember what was the... What, like, you saw kids playing at school. Was there something yeah. about the game that drew you in? Like, was there a particular card or just the way it was played? Or By that point, uh, I had already been, like, into games like chess, Go, and, you know, Mahjong. Uh, basically all games that my dad taught me when I was younger. And I also really liked reading fantasy fiction, back then, so I guess it was those two things that sort of drew me in. Uh, I'm going to guess you are you were a, or maybe still am, a Lord of the Rings fan, based on your uh, MTGO name, right? Uh, there's actually a funny story about that MTGO name. I used to be a much bigger Tolkien fan. It hasn't aged well for me. It has dawned on me that he was more of a linguist than actually a good fictional writer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I've gotten older. Yeah. Um, there's actually a story about that that uh, name. That uh, account was... I didn't originally create that account. A friend of mine created that account, and he was a huge Tolkien fan. <laughs> uh, but he basically quit Magic at some point, so I sort of just like assumed possession of the account. Nice. So you've been, I guess, crushing so. it uh, after assuming his mantle. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Funny how that works, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. So, uh, yeah, you got your revised uh, decks. Uh, you got your parents to take you to the store. This sounds super familiar uh, to me. <laughs> uh, I had yeah, a brother I'm that sure. got hooked on, but I'm guessing you're. Uh, uh, were you? Are you an only child or? Uh... No, I have a younger sister. Uh... She did not play Magic with me, nor was she ever interested, which is fine. I think it's more of a guy thing, unfortunately. Yep. <laughs> I mean, not I, not, yep. not that it's inherently a guy thing. Uh, I think guys just tend to be more inter interested in it naturally. Yeah, and when you see kids playing at school, it's probably the guys, right? Or the boys. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I mean, you got your uh, your decks, and you might have started playing with the kids. And then what, what happened after that? Okay, so at some point I was in, uh, do you know the former bookstore chain Borders? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, they're mostly shut down now, but one of those Sundays uh, I was in a Borders and I saw a deck building guide by, uh, I don't know, I don't remember who it's by, but basically it was a deck building guide to competitive type one decks of that era and that's like for a kid who's in like middle school reading that it sort of just blew my mind that you could build decks in a very focused sort of fashion of course all of these all of these decks had like you know lotus soaring you know all the moxen and they were trying to do sort of 
things much faster than I was used to. But reading that had a huge effect on my uh, magic, I guess, development is the right word. Was it something that you read the passages or the deck lists and you thought, I wanted to do that or I wanted to play with power, uh, pun intended, you know, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to aspire, like, what, what was going through your mind? Like, did you, did you want to emulate those kind of decks? Is that what was happening or? Yeah, there was one deck in particular. Uh, it was called, I quote, the deck. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the history, but it was basically what we would call a three to five color control deck nowadays. It had um, mind twist, a bunch of counter spells, ways to get ahead on cards. I th I think it was basically it taught me what it meant to play a deck that was sort of focused on just nullifying whatever your opponent was doing and then winning the game very slowly. Right. As I recall, the finisher for that deck was just good old Sarah Angel, right? Like yes, you, that is correct. You literally mm. just counter or kill everything. You neuter the opponent like a true control deck, and then you just play the original Entreat the Angel, uh, which was Sarah Angel. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So, uh, yeah. So basically, just seeing that deck list, uh, it basically blew my mind the first time I saw it. Does I don't that, know. If... <laughs> I, I yeah no I I absolutely I I remember uh, also seeing some books around magic at that time and I remember for me it was uh, reading issues of the Duelist um, you know back when Mark Rosewater was writing puzzles for that magazine uh, and just right. hearing about the decks and they had a little mini magazine in there called Sideboard and uh, right. they were talking about how these players were playing these decks for the first time and. I think as a kid, I, I, I hope you can relate to this, um, it's, you know, when you see somebody playing that, there's just some part of us as competitive players that's like, I want to try that, or I want to I wanna try that thing, I want to get to that level where I'm, you know, at the top and I'm, I'm winning more than I'm losing, you know, you know what I'm saying? So. Right, yeah, I, I definitely uh, have had that experience, and I still have that experience occasionally. <laughs> Uh, so tell me how you got to your first competitive match because you must have played with the kids at school but at some point you saw the book in Borders uh, how did yeah. you go from that to sitting down in a tournament in a gaming store and, and doing that for the first time there's actually a long stretch between that uh, reading that book and then actually playing a sanctioned match of magic in fact I would guess it was about 10 years in between. I didn't actually play a match of Sanctioned Magic until I was in uh, college, essentially. I think it was either my freshman or sophomore year. And I found people who were competitive in a way that sort of resonated with me. They were sort of analytical, you know, math type, math or science type of people who played Magic. At, at Dartmouth and just uh, being able to talk to them and figuring out that hey I might actually want to do this competitively uh, it was sort of an enlightening experience were they competitive like so you had you met them and they were already playing in tournaments and analyzing yeah yeah um, I think 
technically my first booster draft was during onslaught, but I didn't. I wasn't very good, and I think I like I had a sixty card draft deck with Vizara in it. And if you know anything about that format, you well, first off, draft you should just minimize your deck size to <laughs> yeah. you know whatever. But also that's magnified by the fact that I had a card like Vizara, which is like one of the best cards in the format. Period. So you should just play a forty card deck if you have that card. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I wanted to ask, what did you study at at school? Uh, I actually started with physics, changed my mind, went to computer science, changed my mind, and ended up studying math. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I sort of still dabbled, dabbled in the first two, but uh, I didn't finish out the major in either of them. I just took some classes here and there. Okay, so you ended up uh, graduating with a with a math degree. Yeah, and my master's is in uh, I, technically mathematical statistics, but you know, it, I, I can do a bit of everything involving statistics. So, excellent. So, um, your friends, like you, I guess you must have met them through, was it classes or was it like just social clubs or something like that, or just friends? It was, it was classes, and uh, yeah, well, I was also on. I did fencing for a bit in college. And actually, a lot of those guys played magic uh, while not, you know, at fencing practice or whatever, or at class. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, one of one of the guys I met actually, Israel Marquez. Uh, he was originally from Roanoke, Virginia, and I don't know if you know this, but that's where Star City Games is located. And so he, after. Uh, High school every day would work there, and so he just had like relatively big collection, and he was willing to help me get started and teach me stuff about sanctioned magic. You know, it was it was really great. I think without that, I probably wouldn't have played very much constructed magic because I just didn't really have a collection by that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it seems like in all of the uh, origin stories that I've heard about. Um, the good players, they've always had some magic drug dealer or hookup that got them into the gateway, <laughs> yes. the gateway drug, and then, then, yeah. then they, never, they never leave after that, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's sort of how it worked. And then there was another, I actually did join a co-ed fraternity my uh, junior slash senior year, and a bunch of the people in that uh, fraternity also played magic and were willing to lend stuff and, you know, run like drafts every week. So, uh, that was that was basically how, in college, I got into competitive magic, and we would occasionally go to PTQs in our area, which is New England. Uh, we would just like drive around like two to four hours to wherever, and you know just play the constructed or limited PTQ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't do well in most of those uh, until I actually graduated college. So, but I mean, there's always a learning curve, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I would assume that uh, when you're in areas like that, I mean, that's, I mean, these are some of the, the maybe the tougher areas of magic to to compete in, right? I'm, I'm gonna guess that there were probably yeah. a lot of good players. I I remember PTQs that had like uh, Melissa Detora, Jackie Lee, uh, Dan Jordan, just like a bunch of New England people who were reasonably good, and I basically had very little idea of what I was doing 
mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be frank. I just wasn't really in. I didn't have enough practice or enough experience to actually compete with them. Mm-hmm. Was there something that you? Was there a moment in time when you were playing in tournaments, or maybe maybe as you got started, or a little bit later, uh, post graduation, that you said to yourself? I'm going to dedicate time to this game. Like I'm, I'm going to commit myself to high-level magic. Was there a particular point in time? Yeah, I think it's kind of weird. After I graduated from college, I sort of didn't know that I wanted to go to grad school or even what I wanted to do with my life yet. So, I think I ended up playing a lot more Magic Online right after that, and frankly, like. Probably not the best for having a balanced life, but it did teach me a lot about magic that I didn't know before. Just like playing matches and thinking about them, like I don't know, like probably for like six or seven hours per day. <laughs> no, I yeah. mean, there's that's that's yeah. awesome because yeah. if you want to get good at something, you have to put in the time, right? Yeah, my parents were not the most thrilled about this because. Uh, from their perspective, I should have been out trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life or, you know, finding a job or something. But that went on for a bit. Then I actually did end up finding a fellowship at NIH with the help of my parents and also tutoring kids in math for high school because at some point I did get bored of just playing for hours upon end and I, I, I didn't feel like I was contributing anything essentially. To society. Uh, I, I am kind of curious, if I may go back a step, you you had been practicing or playing six to seven hours a day. Yeah. What was your system for practicing? Because, you know, now with the advent of uh, articles and literature and prose writing about how they practice, like, there seems to be a really focused way or an accepted way of doing things. But how did you... Uh, did you just grind games, or did you talk to your friends about certain strategies and lists? Like, how did you go about playing six, seven hours a day? So, back then, this might seem really weird. Not all the deck lists were published from Magic Online, like the deck lists that did well. So, you had to do a lot of research to figure out what was actually in a person's deck, including just messaging them, like, privately online and seeing if they would be willing to do that. Uh, other ways of getting the information was to actually just like cast cranial extraction when you were on like a losing orsate, but you would at least get to see their deck. Oh. That that actually happened a fair number of times to me and other people that I know. Uh, just to get the deck list, people, people would just cast cranial extraction under like a losing board state and just write down whatever was in your deck. Yeah, or it's just screenshotted or something, right? Yeah. But I've I've always been of the opinion that, well, especially nowadays, that doing research and thinking about the game is a lot more helpful than uh, just mindlessly grinding games. I think that's a mistake people make a lot, that they, they assume that the professionals are grinding to some optimal deck list by playing a lot of matches. And that's generally not how it works. People are way more likely to just try to figure out what's actually happening and then do something based on that rather than playing like hours upon end. 
I mean, practice is definitely important, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a there's just this mistaken impression that you need to play like 40 hours before a Grand Prix or whatever to do well, when you probably, if you play test effectively, could do it in half the time. I mean, it's it's one part preparation and one part just being in the moment and being able to react right. properly to the board right. and your opponent. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it it that that is a huge part of it, and it probably helps that I have put in a lot of reps in a lot of different sort of weird formats that I sort of naturally know what to do in most situations. Because mm-hmm. I've I. I think I can I can uh, attest to this because obviously you won GP Seattle with lands and that was not an easy deck to play. It's not an easy deck for someone who doesn't. I'm guessing you're not somebody who plays Legacy 24 uh, seven. It's a format oh, no, that I, happens to be it's yeah. GP, right? <laughs> yeah, I I have played a lot of Legacy in the past, but it's nowadays it's really off and on. But it's not like the format completely changes every time I go back to it. A lot of things still remain true. And in fact, during Seattle, the week before I was at a standard GP, and I was planning on going to the limited GP the weekend after and a modern GP GP the weekend after. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually did cash Atlanta as well, which was sealed deck and draft. Uh, I won 11-4. So I just, I've always been of the opinion that it's better to practice smart than practice a lot. Right. And it definitely seems to me that you are a multi-format all-star, <laughs> if I can put it that way, because I've seen some of your finishes, I mean, standard, modern, draft, uh, other formats, uh, legacy, obviously you won the whole thing. There's no mm-hmm. way that you can put 40 hours of practice into every format every week. So, and and I would have to assume that there's some aspect of just you have muscle memory or or habits from playing so many games in the past that can carry over into any format, right? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I actually have had this discussion with uh, Bob Huang, who you know as well, that the reason the professionals are so good is not because they play all the time, it's because they p- practice well. They know how to practice and they know how to syn- synthesize informa- information very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've seen Paulo pick up miracles the week before a GP and still top eight the GP without having played probably as many games as other people who top eight that GP. And it's not because he's some sort of miracle savant. It's because he knows what needs to be done in most of the matchups just from his magic intuition from playing like thousands of matches of magic previously. How much do you think that also has to do with the fact that? these players, including yourself, have played with these legacy cards when they were maybe in standard or extended or um, in the past. Do you think that factors into it? Like, okay, I've used top a million times before, or do you think that's not really the the main thing? It's just that they have a innate understanding of, or you have an understanding of matchups and how to play out situations. I think that is somewhat true. Um, I did play with top and standard, I'm sure Paolo did as well. Uh, but the the Miracles deck is pretty unique, but it's not so different from uh, the old counterbalance top decks that used to exist that you just have to forget everything. You just have to understand what your end goal is like in most of the matchups 
And yes, playtesting helps there, but it's also just a matter of focusing on what matters. Uh, like if you're playing, you know, Miracles or Storm, it's very clear that you just want to get top counterbalance as soon as possible. Just like focusing on what matters and not worrying about so much about doing every single thing right is also an advantage that I would say some of the professionals have. I think that's uh, an excellent point, Jarvis, because I often talk to people and, you know, these are grinders or these are people that I think are still already fairly good at magic, but they kind of have these mental limits that they impose on themselves or they beat themselves up over small mistakes and they can't get over it for the next three rounds. Um, I think you raise an excellent point, which is, you know, look at the big picture, be in the moment and, um, you don't need to play like a hundred percent technically well. I, I, okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure you guys do like nearly a hundred percent. Like that's probably a prerequisite, but it's, it's a mindset thing as well, where you have to pick yourself back up or just know the matchups and, and, and transcend like, Oh, I made a mistake here or I didn't, I didn't attack here. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. Like even this past weekend, I was playing a match versus Andrew Cunio, who you might have heard the name. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, I have. Yeah. What, one of the turns, I just forgot to attack for two with my Sylvan Advocate, but, I mean, I accepted that I made that mistake, and I moved on, just trying to play as carefully as possible after that. Letting a mistake like that rattle you for the rest of the match is just a good way to incur more mistakes. Right. And I think uh, yeah. a lot of players make that mistake, and, it, and it's good that you you're able to see that that's that's not a good way to win win matches or tournaments, right? It's 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 very good to go back and analyze things that you've done on camera before and notice how you can do them better after the tournament's over. But doing it within the tournament is often very pernicious. Right. Uh, so let me uh, let me switch gears slightly again. Um, you had said that you know obviously you studied math, so I'm, I'm going to guess some of it helps with uh, with with magic. Like, do you see any intersection between um, your field of study and magic, and do you think there might be some relationship there? Yeah, I tend to I tend to think about things in more probabilistic sense than I think a lot of magic players do. Uh, I try to I, I think you're familiar with this idea but I try to envision what cards could be in their range based on how the game has played out so far and sort of assign a likelihood to some of the cards on the fly uh, that's I think this is a pretty big idea in poker too not reading someone but just having a range of hands that your opponent could have Okay, yeah, so definitely trying yeah. to uh, figure out what your outs are and what your opponent's outs are and what they could possibly have. I think that's yeah, definitely, right. definitely key. Yeah, at some points in some games, there's 0% to have something because they would have just played it already to beat you. So, And it's really important to realize that. Like, And also, sometimes you just can't play around a card, so I don't bother playing around it. I'm just like, if he has his card, I'm going to lose 100% of the time. So you should just play as though they don't have it. Just focusing on likelihoods, but also realizing when the likelihood doesn't matter. I see. Um, okay, that's that's pretty that's pretty interesting because I've just from articles I've read by a lot of um, 
writers or pro writers, it seems like that's something that's always in their in their bag of tricks or in their uh, repertoire that they 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 understand. Uh, is that something that you picked up quite early, even as you were playing Magic in in college, or did it develop over time? I think it took me a while to develop. Oh, it's definitely was not in the early stages of my development. Okay. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to ask you was, you did fencing for a while, so I mean, and you met some of the your your friends who play Magic through that, and that's a competitive thing. Magic is a competitive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even mahjong or uh, yeah. any game can be competitive. But I want to ask you, why Magic? Like, why this game that's taken you know so much, so many hours of your life investment as opposed to other games and hobbies? Uh, so I, I when I was in uh, middle school and high school, I did play competitive chess to some degree, not the greatest amount of success. I just realized that a game that's fully deterministic like that is basically, you're only going to become very good at it if you're willing to study for hours on end. And I decided at some point that just a fully deterministic game wasn't for me. So uh, Magic being sort of like halfway between chess and poker is something that I decided I was really interested in honing my skills on. Was it also, did it have something to do with the fact that you recognized, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded, it sounds like chess is a very skill-intensive game that requires a lot of study and practice to, to play well, and magic could be in that category as well. So you aspire to climb a mountain which is uh not easy for just anybody to climb like this is not this is not checkers right like this is this is something (laughs) that you have to put in the work is that something that Mm -hmm. was attractive to you when it came to magic i think at the beginning i didn't think about that aspect of it it was only much later into the competitive arena that i realized that that was a thing that distinguished people and then i started applying myself to it like i did basically start as I guess what people would call a competitive casual player as opposed to just like an ordinary casual player. Can you explain what you mean by that, by competitive casual? Okay, so my, again, going back to my friend Israel Marquez, there was actually a point where we were both studying overseas in Beijing at Beijing Normal University. I don't know if you know where that is. Oh, you I absolutely do. do. Absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> Beishrida, I think, yeah. is the the name for it. Mm-hmm. So Dartmouth had a program with them in the summers, and I believe they still do, for studying Chinese language and Chinese culture. But on the flip side, there's a lot of downtime, so <laughs> Israel and I would play Magic a lot. And he had two decks at the time. He had Shuhei Nakamura's Red Deck Wins, which had four Rishidan Port, four Wasteland, eight Red Fetchlands, and eight Mountains, and a bunch of Red Creatures and, like, Cursed Scrolls. Uh, and he would play The Rock, uh, like, the version of The Rock that has Vampiric Tutor, Ravenous Baloth, and Recurring Nightmare. So, my introduction to playing Magic with Israel was playing that matchup a lot, and that is what I would consider a competitive matchup 
but I was a casual player. So that's what I sort of mean by competitive casual, if that makes sense. So it wasn't in a in a sanctioned tournament, but you were playing with uh, competitive caliber decks. Is that right? Yeah, that Shuhei even top aided a pro tour in 2005 with that deck, I believe. And I think he lost to Pierre Canale in the finals, who was playing Affinity. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's how I learned to play. I guess red deck wins. And it must have been it must have been a challenging matchup, right? Like the red deck wins versus the uh, uh, the 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 rock. I'm assuming that it wasn't a landslide in any deck's favor. That uh, I'm sure that your friend was a pretty good player already, and so it it. You probably won some and lost some. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I we weren't keeping track, but I definitely learned a fair amount from both sides. Uh, it's also interesting. We played maybe at one of the local shops in Beijing at some point, uh, and trying to explain to your opponent how you're activating Curse Scroll and naming an English card when they don't really know English is not the easiest experience. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I eventually settled on uh, writing the name of the card in English down mm -hmm. because they could read, but they couldn't really s communicate in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, their, their reading and writing is a lot stronger than verbalizing anything. And I think it's just yep. the way that they studied the English language right. where it's just all... Um, written exams and not nothing oral or verbal yep yeah um, that's really cool I did not know that yeah. you spent some time in Beijing so um, <laughs> I learned something new every day that's, that's I, awesome I actually spent uh, I would I would guess it was about eight weeks there then I visited my father's family in Hong Kong and also visited a shop down there but most of the Hong Kong players do speak English because it was a British colony for so long Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very different between Hong Kong and uh, mainland oh, China. Oh yes, I, I, I know, I <laughs> and, know very uh, well. I know I'm kind of like speaking to the preaching to the choir, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, living in Beijing now, I still feel that. So, <laughs> how bad is the smog nowadays for you? I'm curious. You know, it's uh, we've been really, really fortunate so far this year. There has not okay. been any. Um, there haven't haven't been any quote unquote outbreaks. I say outbreaks snidely <laughs> because it's all manufactured by right. them turning factories on and off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean it's fine. I've got my two air purifiers in my apartment, and uh, you know I have my my masks uh, in my backpack anytime I need it. <laughs> but uh, right. it's right. it's been really good. So one of my one of my traditions is that before going out anywhere I in the morning instead of checking for the temperature I just look at the uh, air quality index app on my <laughs> right, on my phone right. like I don't even care if it's you know 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 80 Fahrenheit or whatever I just I only care about the the air quality priorities right so uh, but to answer your question it's been really really good um, yeah anyway fingers crossed knock on wood you know <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. yeah so I want to talk to you a little bit about um, you know, obviously your process as a magic player, which is which is really awesome because I have not heard any of your backstory before, which is really cool. Um, but I also <laughs> want to get into a little bit of the highs and lows that you've had as a 
as a player? Doesn't maybe competitive casual, maybe competitive or maybe casual. Can you tell me like what's the best magic related memory that you've had? Like what's a real high for you uh, when it came when it comes to magic, like over the years that you've played? Well, as as you know, I did win in Seattle and I would consider that to be the best magic related memory that I've had in my life mainly because it was actually pretty close to sort of dialing it back uh, competitive wise because I was sort of frustrated that I, a lot of my friends were qualified for you know whatever pro tour and I was not doing so well and basically I said I, I basically set that four week Grand Prix journey from Indy to Seattle to Atlanta to Pittsburgh and said if I didn't qualify then I was going to just reevaluate and maybe take some steps back but I mean fortunately enough I the, the deck I chose I got very good matchups and I got lucky when I needed to and I won the event and it felt really surreal at the time that I had only done some I had done something that I've only read about other people doing. Granted, a lot of my friends had done it, so I knew I could definitely do it, but still there's by no means I, I was by no means expecting that to happen. I mean, how many people were in that GP? There were I at least 1,500? Or was there something around that? I believe, ironically, the, the number of people was 2014 and not 2015. <laughs> 2014. I believe it was just one short of... Uh, being the same as the year. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I mean, 2014. That's uh, that's not a small number, right? Um, even if you had buys, I mean, you. Yeah. I mean, you just said like it's a combination of good matchups and obviously you playing well, and uh, and and you know dodging some bullets here and there, right? Right. That I definitely had to dodge some bullets sometimes, and I had a lot of turn two 2020s in that tournament, and. You can't really expect that to happen that often. Yeah, it's always great when a uh, prison control deck can kill on the third turn or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think... I, I think that is actually pretty unique to this deck. I can't think of many combo prison decks in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell me about this, like, rush that as you got your way to first place, uh, was there... Did you feel in day two that you were in the zone or did you feel something different from what you felt before as you got into at, on your way to the top eight let's start with that i didn't really feel that differently until i actually made it to the elimination rounds i've had a lot of close calls in different formats playing for a century top eight of uh grand prix and i like basically just never made the one and in happen uh this time it happening obviously it feels great uh, beating my opponent Martin Goldman Kears who was playing Aluren I've I've actually uh, I've actually known him from other pro tours I w and I did remember from SCG events that he always played Aluren in basically all of them and people especially in Legacy have a tendency not to switch especially if they love their deck I knew he was one of those guys so I, I, I developed a game plan versus that deck on the fly because I haven't actually like tested the Lauren matchup. But basically the game plan was keep him off four mana. 
That sounds really obvious, but it's better to just lay it out in your head before actually playing the game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just lay out the plan, try to execute it as well as possible. I executed it pretty well in game one, given I had mana bond into a bunch of lands on turn one, with Loam already in the graveyard, <laughs> because you just discard it to your mana bond. Game two is the game I made a mistake, uh, because I was supposed to punishing fire his scavenging use first instead of his death right. And that game base Basically, trying to play around the ooze cost me too much mana on one turn, so he got to four mana and killed me. And then game three, I just had like I had a great start uh, in that I had two crows and grips to fight off a Lauren, but then I just peeled Dark Depths on turn three or four, and he was stuck on one or two lands, and one of them was, was Volroth Stronghold, so I knew he couldn't do very much to actually kill me. So, yeah, that's how I made the one in end, and then after that, felt sort of surreal. Although I've played a lot of PTQ top eights in my life, and it didn't really feel that that different from a PTQ top eight. I see. Um, and just going back to the Alluren matchup, that sounds like a matchup where you didn't. It goes back to what you said about you know having a game plan or being in the moment and and excelling there. It's not like he practices against Alluren. For your winning in, right. you know, for forty hours a week or something, yeah, it, right, or even one hour a week, uh, you just had a game plan in your head, and you, you told yourself that was the game plan. Keep him off four lands, and you executed on that game plan, and that was your, that was your line, right? So, yep. th- it sounds like that's that's sort of something that you had that focus, which I don't think a lot of players have that focus. Not everybody in that room in and GB Seattle was thinking the same. Now, this kind of thing, this that this mindset that you had, which sounded very focused and clear for your winning in, is that something different from the previous winning ins where you didn't quite make it? Did you feel was there something was there any mental adjustment there? Or am I just fishing for for a difference? Like, did you feel different or is it was the same kind of systematic game plan that you ritual that you had? It, it didn't really feel different to me in any of those matches I've played. Um, I'll give you some other examples of matches I've played for basically pseudo winning ends. I've played against Todd Anderson round 15 of GP Richmond. He was playing what people would call Teamer Splinter Twin, and I was playing Jund, like mid-range. Uh, and I knew my game plan versus him, which is just kill all of his creatures. It's just that game three, that plan didn't work the way I expected it to. Which, you know, that can happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think I played... Uh, I don't think I made too many mistakes. I'm sure I made a few here and there. M- mainly because it's just really difficult to avoid playing an entire match without making mistakes. I think that's true for almost everyone, unless your name is John Finkel. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think... Just accepting the fact that you're going to make mistakes... And not letting it bother you is the correct way to approach things. But yeah, so that happened to me in Richmond. I also lost playing for a top eight of Grand Prix Atlantic City in 2013, which was standard. I, I do know my mistake in that tournament, but unfortunately by that point in the tournament, I couldn't correct it. It was a deck-building mistake, <laughs> which by, that, by round 13 of the tournament, you can't change your deck. So I was committed to having that mistake be in my deck, but... 
it was definitely a mistake. I had a 61 card main deck because I couldn't figure out what to cut. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to the best of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not too worried about it. I still did very well in that tournament. Just I would have liked to do one better and top eight the tournament with 61 cards. So then I could explain why I shouldn't have had 61 cards in my deck. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's go back to... So it sounds like, uh, yeah, you've been to similar situations, and this time it, it worked out for you in Seattle. Uh, so let's go back to the top eight. Uh, you said then it started to feel more surreal, right, as you were playing the uh, yeah. the rounds. Like, how what was that like? Uh, because I saw the matches, but I didn't know what was going through your mind. So the first match I played against uh, Shin Sui, I think he's also from... Beijing, if I had to guess, maybe it's somewhere in China. I didn't, didn't, I can't remember right now. But I know he's from mainland China. Uh, he's playing. He was playing Shardo with Sultai. That's a very good matchup for me. And I just like demolished him in two games. It wasn't really close, and then didn't take very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just felt like going through the motions. Second match was versus Brian Demars. Uh, he was playing Just Guy Miracles, which is a much tougher matchup. Uh, they can first off kill your Merit Age with Swords of Plowshares. Second off, Counterbalance can shut off your Loams. Uh, that's why the matchup, I would say, is slightly unfavorable. And he had a bunch of Blood Moons in his sideboard, which that card is also excellent versus me as well. Fortunately, I think game one, he mulliganed, kept his hand, and then just didn't scribe before the game started. And this is actually a legal action for him to take because scrying, if you don't scry, it's just assumed you left on top. So he just didn't scry. I think he was probably jet-lagged, as Ari Lax told me after the match, but uh, I'm just giving a full description of what happened. So he scries, goes like, and I'm on the play, I go like, land go, or land exploration go, play another land. He goes, I on top. My next turn is... Uh, play stage and depths and just threaten the combo and he tops on his upkeep and just doesn't find a white white source so I just make a 20 20 and kill him. That's not very exciting but that's literally what happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, uh, that's, that's how we, you get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's what I'm saying sometimes you get lucky and they just don't draw a fetch land because a fetch land means that he would have like a Tundra or whatever that was basically invulnerable to being Rashid imported or wastelanded that particular turn. So yeah, game two, he has a Misfortune Morgan of five, fails to scry again, just plays a land and says go. Like, okay. <laughs> and then I just threaten the 2020 on turn two again. He casts a bunch of cantrips. I think about it for a while. He has... Uh, a fetch land up, or no, he has he has a land and a fetch land up at the end of his turn three. And so I just decided to go for it because he had Mulligan a bunch and he shuffled with his ponder. On my turn, he casts Brainstorm looking for to Miracle Terminus. Uh, doesn't find anything, just shakes my hand. And that was one of the fastest matches of Magic I've played in top eight of any event. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, the the deck that can dig for a million cards did not get there, and also yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've played a lot of matches versus miracles, uh, especially when they mulligan a bunch like that. It's 
I think way more correct to be aggressive versus them. I have played the grind out, get million restriction ports game versus them. It's not really that pleasant to do. Basically, there there are two ways you can approach the matchup, which is one, you can just find like a bunch of restriction ports and port all of their white sources, then make the 2020. The other thing you can do is to just go for it and try to loan back your combo over and over. I tend to not aggressively make the 2020 versus them. I just think in those games it was slightly higher equity for me to do so because he had mulliganed and you know didn't scry and you know I also in that second game even if I had gotten swords there I also I still had a gamble in my hand that could go find life from the loam so I could rebuild within like two turns. So I mean, Jarvis. I mean, that sounds like a bit of your your math background, right? Like you you were able to uh, yeah. to to see that you know this was the right the right move to make. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it is correct for you to call even when you're unfavored because what's in the middle of the pot is so high. You know, the so-called pot odds. Uh, I can't. You, I I recall that you played poker for a while, so. When the pot odds are good enough for you, you should call, even though you're probably unfavored. Yeah. But here, here, I think I was favored, and the pot odds were good. So. Yeah. You know. And how much of uh, the fact that you were already up a game calculate into your decision? Did it have any effect on your game? Your 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 game two, just go for it, or did it not have any effect? Zero. I I really hate making decisions based on that. I think it's completely wrong to do so. You should treat every game independent of the other games. I, I see this happen a lot to people. They'll win a card in like game one that's actually not very good in the matchup and just leave it in because it won them the game one. You should just treat every game independently. I think that's a really key lesson and unfortunately yeah. a lot of players never never learn that, right? Right. Hmm. Okay, so yeah. it sounds sounded like you were you know on a heater. I mean, obviously the shardless one you you were favored, so two was not mm-hmm. a surprise. But two oing miracles and someone who's a obviously a, a high quality player like Brian is is not not easy. And he failed to scry both games uh, due to jet lag or whatnot. But but regardless of that, you you're on a heater. And then um, yeah, I mean, tell me what's going through your mind at that point that you <laughs> that you beat Brian. Uh, I was. I was pretty happy that it didn't last like 90 minutes, honestly. <laughs> the, my biggest fear was that I would get tired after playing like a 90-minute match versus Miracles. Uh, often it can end that way because of having to get all the return ports, so it takes forever to actually finish a game. Uh, but just getting a freebie sort of like that was much nicer. <laughs> and actually, like I've known Calcano for a long time. He and I... Uh, both of us cashed the exact same first GP we cashed, which was Grand Prix Philadelphia 2008. It was extended, and Calcano actually beat me in that tournament, so... <laughs> uh, he was my only loss on day one of that tournament. He was playing Doran, I was playing uh, Goblins, and I remember this very distinctively. Games one and three, he had Doran the Siege Tower, Umozawa's GTA, and Shizo Death's Storehouse. I don't know if you know what Shizo Death's Storehouse does. That's a blast from the past, but uh, can you just tell me? I I, I could look it up, but yeah. uh, just tell just tell uh, the listeners uh, what it is. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you very quickly. It is a black legendary land from Kamigawa. You can it, it taps for a black, 
you can also pay a black and tap it to give target electronic creature fear until end of turn. So the problem was Kalkano could just fear up his Dorian every turn with Gita on it and kill all my guys. Even though I had Skirk Prospector in play, which lets me sack a goblin to add a red to my pool, without the Shizo or the Doran or the Gita, I would have won both of those games easily. Mm-hmm. Instead, he beat me 2-1. <laughs> so I, I definitely remember that uh, very, very distinctively. Right, so that's that's in a way, that's kind of, uh, he had the nuts, or he had the really favorable draws in 2008, I guess. Yeah, I, it, normally, back then, I I remembered beating a lot of the Doran decks, too, just like playtesting and knowing how the matchup went. Um, but Calcano definitely beat me in that tournament, and I think we both ended up 11-4 in that tournament for $250, if I recall correctly. Okay. But, yeah, so I... I I was just like, man, now I finally get to get revenge on Calcano after all these years. <laughs> I, the Grixis Dover matchup is very, very, very good for lands as well. Uh, yeah, I think that's an understatement, right? <laughs> uh, you can occasionally lose them, but it usually involves something weird happening or you're not being careful enough. Yeah, That is my perception of the matchup. They have to get the nuts. They have to have, like, turn one Delver, turn yeah. two Delver counter days exactly for exact and hit you for exact season like just have the nuts to beat you right yeah and a lot of those draws are not good enough versus multiple maze events which is what I had versus him I had like three mazes even though I didn't have a second land because he well at some point he uh, he he probed me on turn one to see that he should daze my loam immediately because it would get me uh, my third mana source mm-hmm. so he just dazed it a few times while I built up mazes in play and then at some point he wastelands my stage which was letting me cast Loam so I just decided to crop rotate one of my mazes away for Tabernacle and he only had one mana in play so he lost a bunch of his creatures and decided to concede to save time I guess because those, those games can get pretty mentally draining and I think it's okay for Calcano to concede there even though it's a little bit premature, just to save mental energy. I think that's something that you guys as high-level players uh, do that people don't often think about, right? Because, I mean, you're talking about uh, the final rounds, and uh, a casual competitive player might be like, I'm going to play it out, you know, I'm going to play all this match against Miracles, you know, even if it's three hours, even if... uh, uh, even if... Because I have one out, right? Right? Like, what's to lose? But yeah. I think you guys understand that... Look at the big picture, right? Like, you, you, you're trying to win the war, not the battle, so... Right. To be fair, I know Owen has the complete opposite view. He will play every single game to the bitter end because he knows he can... He just has to stand him on to last that long. I think that's just knowing yourself better than your opponent knowing you rather than that being, like, strictly correct or whatever. I think for Owen, it's correct because the amount of exhaustion it would take for him to make a game-losing mistake is so much higher than the amount of magic we're actually likely to have to play. Interesting. So so that, that that's to sort of counterbalance your point, because I know Owen just almost always doesn't concede until lethal damage is on the stack. Right, right. Owen's also superhuman, right? <laughs> I, it would not surprise me to find out he's a cyborg in dis- disguise now. Okay, he probably has a time machine. I don't know him, but just <laughs> just uh, just from observing him, he seems right. to be from the future. 
so right <laughs> uh okay so i mean and and there's another thing i want to comment on which is in your matchup with calcano a lot of people were were mentioning this like they 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 mentioned that you were playing very methodically and that you were playing around something that you thought he might have had uh can you kind of walk through what's in your mind i mean obviously you came out on top so you made the right place i'm just wondering like how you like what you did specifically that you know allowed you to come out on top because a, a lot of the observers they were saying like oh man like jarvis could have won like 10 turns ago you know but but you managed to 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 grind it out in your way and still be successful like can you can you talk about your your process through that so uh sort of deep into the second game i noticed calcano had two cards in hand for a while that he wasn't using and I had, we had had access to Deckless. So I know for sure he has Surgicals coming in, and he has two of them. Here, he had already used one to take my Punishing Fires. So, and I was relatively sure the other card was Submerge, based on how the game played out. He just hadn't used either of those cards for a while. I was less certain that he had Surgical, but basically the problem with making the 2020 Ace up there is... He can just submerge the 2020 and then surgical dark depths. However, I actually think I made a giant mistake. When he drew Wasteland and didn't wasteland my dark depths, I should have figured out immediately that he didn't have surgical in his hand. Because he can just force the play then, right? Mm -hmm. He can just wasteland my dark depths, I make a 2020, he submerges it, and then uh, surgicals the uh, dark depths. I've thought about this a lot since then, and I basically made a promise to myself to try not to make that mistake again. At the time, I thought I was basically cutting off all of his outs by killing all of his islands, Mm -hmm. so he couldn't cast a merge. Mm -hmm. I mean, he... If he doesn't have an island to cast the free cast on submerge, he basically can't cast it because his deck has no lands after that. Right. Uh, So... At the time, I really thought it was the correct thing, but it turns out it was wrong, and I had this pointed out to me by some very good friends of mine after the tournament. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're not going to, you know, it's just as as I'm saying, you should reanalyze all of your games after after the tournament is finished, and just uh, remember where you can improve. I think that's just the best way to learn. Other people will see things that you don't see. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of magic, right? I mean, it's a game yeah. of uh, yeah. inches. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I was fairly confident in my read on Submerge. I was less confident about my read on uh, Surgical. Right, right. Okay, so, uh, I mean, now you've, you've beaten Christian Calcano. You've, uh, you've had... You've 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 gotten him back. I don't want to say revenge because it's you know you know you guys are friends. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. it's not really quite yeah, the same. it's not quite the same. But you're on yeah. top. Uh, you know, you just won a freaking tournament with you know 2014 people. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than the fact that you felt kind of validated was as a as a Magic competitive player because you had said that you know you were considering stepping back a little bit. What was that moment for you at that point in time? Like, I want to know because I've never been there. Like, what what's going through your mind? Like, when you when you know you've won the whole thing. It 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 just really felt like 
someone pinch me, make sure this isn't a dream, you know? <laughs> I, I, I tend to take, uh, I, it, it was just really, really surreal because I, I just didn't expect it to happen because it's so unrealistic to expect that to happen. Like basically my viewpoint on tournaments is this, even if you're the best player in the room, you're probably no more than like six over N to win the tournament where N is like the number of players in the room. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you're like a real like read or own level, you're probably like maybe at like 20 over N, which is much higher, but that's still not a good probability to bet on. Yeah, that's still 20 over N. Yeah. Yeah, that's for that tournament, that would have been like 1%, which is like non zero, but that's not really a realistic expectation. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you just felt kind of surreal, right? To use your words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and kind of tell me kind of what happened immediately after that. Like, uh, on, on Facebook, it seemed like your friends were very congratulatory, as they should be, that you, you did it, right? Uh, did you right. did you feel the love of the support of like the the players around you and your friends? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty unreal. I'm really fortunate that a lot of my friends were at that tournament to you know actually congratulate me right afterwards. Um, I don't know. It's just like. Knowing that there's so many people supporting you in a tournament is a great feeling. I, I still get a lot of support for all of the GPs I go to nowadays. Uh, I'm still trying my hardest to get these last three pro points, as you know. But yeah, just at that tournament, it, it was great to just have some people congratulate you and then, you know, have a nice dinner with them and talk about things that happened during the tournament. You know, it was just great afterwards. Yeah, that sounds amazing, and uh, I, I, you're one of a, a very, very few like select group of people that have climbed the mountain. So I'm, you know, I'm super, super happy for you, man. Like I, I know that we, I don't know each, we didn't know each other very well before this conversation, but this is, <laughs> this is like, right. this is, this is what I love. It's just getting into the, right. the minds <laughs> of, of players, right? Um, uh, so if I, if I can be sort of Debbie Downer for a moment. Um, Let's talk about the lows, because uh, that's what I like. Um, uh, what's oh man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's the worst magic-related memory or experience that you've had? I think um, there's probably a few matches where I haven't been like the best possible person I could have been. Like I was just mad, or you know, I'm I'm a human being, right? Like, I can't be perfect all the time. Maybe I just took it out too much on some person because I wasn't doing as well as I want to. And there there have been multiple periods of my life where I've done that. I'm not really proud of it because it's just magic, you know, is a game of luck. Sometimes you're going to lose. You shouldn't take it out on other people. I, I don't have, like, a very specific moment I want to point to, but I know I have done this in the past. And... I hope to never repeat it again and just try to stay as positive as possible. I know that's that's maybe not as specific of an example as you'd like, but that's what I can basically remember. Just uh, those points yeah. in my life where I was like sort of super salty for no reason and just took it out on my opponent. 
hey man, I think we've all been there. Like I, I haven't even played at the same high levels as you have, and I get salty playing in locals. Like just, just the other <laughs> right. week, man. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm fucking like in my 30s, and 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 I got salty yeah. because. You know, and I, I think I talked about that in my writing too. Is like yeah. sometimes I feel like I, uh, I deserve to win a match. You know, that sounds really bad. It's basically entitlement with a capital E. Like right. for me, it's like you know, okay, this guy doesn't know anything about this matchup. He's playing a terrible deck. I'm also playing a deck which is favored against him, um, and then I lose. You know, and and sometimes I think over eight with age, I'm better able to control. Uh, how I externalize it, but I think internally I still feel that little bit of thing. You know what I? You know what I? You know what I mean? Like I don't. Right. I'm not trying to like say that that's what you're feeling, but I think a lot of players feel that at some point in time, and and I think it's also a gift and a curse, right? Because you right. you feel like because that's the thing that makes you be competitive in the first place. So it's it's kind of like right. uh, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but it's kind of like how we uh, denigrate certain people for doing this when that thing was the thing that got there got them there in the first place you know what i mean right i i understand your point exactly and i agree uh that to some degree that's what motivates people to uh try to win i suppose is the right word mm -hmm. that that feeling of i i think my deck is good I want to win. I think my opponent's playing something that's worse, and I think I'm favored, so I should win the match. Uh, the thing I tell myself almost nearly every tournament nowadays is that, yes, I know I can win the tournament, but I still have to earn every match win. I tell that to myself before the tournament starts. I try to keep in my mind, because to, to prevent the the maybe arrogance or cockiness or even saltiness that could result if you don't tell yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just the fact that, uh, I know you didn't go into specifics, but just the fact that you have that awareness uh, about you know things that you could have done better or could have been less salty, I think that in itself is proof that you know you know you are you have a degree of like self-awareness that you you are looking to get better and maybe part of getting better is just being uh, treating your opponents with more more respect, as, as I'm trying to learn every day as well. So, yeah, my uh, a friend of mine, Steve Rubin, wrote an article saying that your opponents are humans too was the short tagline, uh, and I I think that article was very healthy for him to write, based on your description of you know how people can sort of denigrate other people and say, oh man, your deck was so bad, you don't deserve to win or whatever. I mean, you, you don't know their motivation for playing that deck or why they're playing Magic. Maybe they're having a terrible day and you're just piling, piling worse on them. You know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's just that you should treat, try to treat your opponents with as much respect as possible. And, you know, at the end of the day, Magic is still a game. You shouldn't ruin it for other people even if you think you should win. Not to get too preachy or anything, but uh, that's how I feel about it nowadays. I hundred percent agree with Steve. Do you think that you've mellowed out in some ways as you've gotten older or gotten more experience in playing Magic? Yeah, I I think so. I think in my early days, I really just thought winning was everything, 
uh, even 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 as like a sophomore or junior in college, I still thought winning was everything. And nowadays, I'm like, yes, I would like to win. It would make me slightly happier to win than to lose. But losing also happens, and you shouldn't let it. You can still win a tournament after losing once or twice a lot of the time. You shouldn't let it drag you all the way down. Mm -hmm. So you know a lot of the uh, top level players. That, you know, obviously they, uh, you're friends with them, and uh, and and you guys have been in tournaments together. What you just said about like wanting to win at all costs being something in your mindset when you were younger. Do you think that's how all the good or great players got started? That they had to have that fire, or could it be? Could it have? Could they have become this way through other means as well? Yeah, I think having the fire and being respectful are not actually mutually exclusive things. It's just very rare that you'll see someone who can embody both at the same time. If that makes any sense. It does because at some point, like it's a trade-off. Like you have to, you have to go yeah. one or the other, and it's not easy. I think there are people who do embody both. Uh, it's just they tend to be pretty friendly, but when when they're in a match, they'll look for, you know, a way to win within the game. They won't try to play like crazy mind games or whatever or trash talk their opponent. They'll just try to look for. A hole in the game that they can exploit, you know, maybe a slight weakness of play on your part, and try to take advantage of it, and still be very respectful and friendly during the match. Like the the examples of people of this are Reed Duke and Luis Scott Vargas to me in my mind. They are fierce competitors, but they're also some of the friendliest people that you can ever meet. I don't know about competitive competitor because I never played against uh, against them, <laughs> right. but I can I can tell you that LSV is absolutely a class act uh, when he's not playing Magic. Um, so in yeah, my, no, in my he, he's still a class him. act when he's playing Magic. He's just looking for holes in you know whatever game to try to win. Right. But he wants to win still. Mm -hmm. He's just not going to like trash talk you down to nothing while doing it. Right. So. All of you guys have the fire, right? Whether it's uh, you or him or or Reed, like you, you absolutely yeah. want it. But you want it, you want it in a way that is like maybe the maybe the word is honorable. Like you're not angle shooting. You're not you're not uh, you're not trying to get some unfair edge or bullying the other person. But you're just trying to enforce your will on the game. Is that is that fair? That that's pretty accurate. I mean, on the flip side, I'm not going to hold my opponent's hand while playing the game, if that makes sense. I would right. be respectful, but firm. If I think they've messed something up, I'm not going to really try to let them take it back, especially at a high-level tournament. I think that's just un an unrealistic expectation on their part. Oh, I mean, I, I, I play basketball, and the analogy I'll make here, Jarvis, is uh, I'm I'm playing against the other team, and the ref calls a, a foul against them. I'm not going to argue to the ref that that shouldn't be a foul. You know, I shouldn't be going <laughs> right. to the free throw line, you know? <laughs> yeah, and like, in fact, at the last GPI, I actually caught the end of the last, uh, it was Golden State Warriors and uh, the Thunder. That game was extremely close. And yeah, there, there were fouls at the end. People took their foul shots. <laughs> that game at one point, I think uh, the Thunder was up by eight. But then 
the, there were a bunch of three-pointers made that uh, won to go and see at the game. Yeah, Actually, absolutely. a large number of three-pointers That now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, to the Warriors, being down by 10 points doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. All it takes is a, a few baskets, <laughs> and they're back. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, right. they also forced uh, Westbrook and Durant on the Thunder into a comedy of errors, but that's... You know, I'm a, I'm a huge hoops junkie. We'll probably go like another yeah. hour just talking about basketball. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I don't know that much about it. I just happened to be in a sports bar eating dinner with friends, and I saw it. Oh, oh no! I mean, don't get me wrong. That was an excellent <laughs> game. Like that. Like I think anyone who just enjoys competition in general can just feel the. Uh... Yeah, I I could I could see that it was there's something going on. I just I I obviously didn't understand all of the intricacies of it, but. Uh... I could, I could see it. Oh no! I mean, uh, and don't let anybody like talk you down and say like, "Oh, you don't know basketball," <laughs> right. you know, because it's like it's the same. Right. I mean, anything is like can be enjoyed on different levels. It's kind of like what you said about uh, right. your opponent. Uh, he might have been playing the game for another reason rather than maybe winning that day. You know, like there's so many angles to everything, and there's no real uh, right and wrong, as I've learned over the years. So, right, right. yeah. Um, actually, that you gave me inspiration to ask you a slightly different question. Um, you know, have you had experiences playing with like opponents that were just incredibly unpleasant and were like angle shooting you and trying to do things that were on the verge, or maybe they were illegal within the the tournament rules? Like, um, have you had a lot of those types of experiences? Fortunately, not. I mean, there there have been a non-zero number of incidents, which I think basically, I mean, the, pe- people are human, right? There are some, a very small percentage of human beings that are somewhat unpleasant to interact with, and I don't think you can avoid it for the most part. So yes, that has happened to me. Uh, it's sort of unpleasant to play against them, but I found the best thing that works is to just be firm and not get angry yourself when in interacting with them. Because they're looking to get that rise out of you, right? That right. that typically is how they operate. If you just don't give them what they want, in some sense you're winning you know, the moral victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of the times you're actually just winning the actual victory because they tend to not be as good at magic if they're trying to play those mind games or whatever. Mm-hmm. They may have optimized for for that as opposed to actually trying to be a better player right. or being in the moment. Right. Okay. Okay. That is a very uh, classy answer. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 great for me to to reflect on as well. Um, mm-hmm. And do you have any specific lessons that you've learned about magic that? you've applied to other parts of your life yeah actually um i used to be sort of it it's more of a general thing i've just noticed that it's a lot easier to get what you want if you're nicer to someone and i think i learned that mostly through magic honestly like basically no one succeeds in magic without networking and to be cynical sometimes you 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 want to get something from someone in magic, right? Like talking to them, learning from them because they're better from you. So you have to treat them nicely. Mm-hmm. The, the, this is a very cynical way of looking at it, but that's how the world operates. Mm-hmm. 
you can't really get anywhere without networking and you have to start somewhere and generally that involves being nice to the person that you want to network with. Mm-hmm. Again, very very cynical, but that that's one of the major lessons I've learned in life. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's too cynical at all. I think that's just uh, understanding how society operates, right? And understanding right. human psychology. So, right. Okay. Uh, so I guess just that's one of the things. It's kind of like outside of the battlefield or the the, the match. Is, yeah. Is, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I see. Uh, and do you have any? daily or weekly rituals when it comes to magic like do you have something that you try to do on a regular basis that you constantly go back to whether it's something physical or something mental it's mostly something um i guess the right word is academic i typically read a lot of articles not for the information contained within them but to see what the other what information other people are getting if that makes sense Oh, I want to see how how my opponents are going to perceive the tournament scene for this week. Okay, so it's kind of like, if I understand you correctly, it's like you see some of the mainstream articles that are out there. So you so yep. you can see that if there are people that are reading these articles en masse, they're going to be following these strategies or these uh, forms of thought. And that might be an opportunity for you to I mean, just have that awareness, but maybe also uh, be contrary in some way that that works to your advantage. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly what I mean. I found a lot of the times that it's somewhat exploitable if that if suppose you know Luis or Reed or write write some article saying that this is how they perceive things, and then if you just do something that is good versus their strategy within the game mm-hmm. that is sort of a way to exploit the informational advantage you have mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about uh, LSV or, or read specifically yeah. but in general right. do you think pros also use that as an exploit themselves where they write something so that they know that everyone in the room will be prescribing to that and using it to their advantage I actually believe they do not for the most part. Uh, the reason being, it's so hard to predict which, how, how large of the percentage of the room is actually going to read that. Um, I can sort of tell based on my opponent if they've read something or not, if that makes sense. But I think it's unrealistic for the, the, the professionals who write articles and produce videos uh, like every day to expect a that producing content like that is going to get them any edge and b is just bad business for them mm-hmm. they should try to just say what they actually think is true and build their brand better because that will more be more likely to pay off better for them i think mm-hmm. the long game is just to be a good human being right and to to, well, uh, to teach yeah. people to uh, to to uh, learn how to fish, maybe instead of. <laughs> well, yeah. Cynically speaking, the people who write better get paid more. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so, meritocratic, it, right? That's that's not cynical. <laughs> yeah, dude, just just producing better content is more likely to get you paid more, and people, the people who really care about the game, will know that you are trying to help people, and they'll treat you better. 
Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Yeah, I I really do not believe most of the people, most of the professionals do not try to try to lie or you know exploit by saying they're going to do something that they're not. Mm -hmm. I really just do not believe that's the case. Right, and I think I'm going to guess that for you and many of them, it's really to say how you feel or uh, to help people get better, right? Like the, I think that's that's the hopefully the goal. Yeah, I love magic, and I hope I can get other people to love magic or you know play magic at a higher level. So maybe at some point I can improve by playing against them as well. You know, sort of a positive feedback loop to use an engineering term. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, I I just think if everyone gets better, then the game gets better, and that's great. Okay. Uh, now, yeah, going back to your answer, you said that one of your rituals obviously is to uh, to to read up on information, absorb and understand how uh, the people are perceiving the per competitive landscape. So that's more of an information gathering and that's part of like being prepared. Now what about going into a high level event or uh, an event, a tournament period? Is there a preparation process that you have uh, or ways that you can maintain a certain level of confidence heading into those. Yeah, there. I do a bunch of things. The first thing I almost always do is write down a list of decks that I think are either performing well or could be good versus what's performing well. And then I'll just basically pick one of those decks to try a bit. Maybe not for hours, hours or hours on end, but just enough to get a sense if this deck is actually you know, viable or not. And if it turns out that it is, then I will do a lot more research on the deck and see what other people say about it to see if I should change it. Then I'll play a few more games and go go a little bit back and forth and then talk to a bunch of people online and get their thoughts on it. I don't actually spend that many hours playing any specific deck. I play enough to get an idea of how the deck should operate and what its end conditions are and then I'll do a lot of research to see if it can be improved. Got it. So, that, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's smart smart preparation, right? So. Yeah, I, I've always been a fan of the phrase, work smarter, not harder. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I think that applies to uh, all, all facets of life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have a... Do you have any mentors in your life, whether it's magic or outside of magic? Uh, do you have somebody that's helped you improve your your outlook and maybe helped you make improvements in your game or your personal side of things? Yeah. So, like, first, my dad is also a statistician. So very early on in my life, he told me not to blame luck because random things happen all of the time. You should try to control what you can control, and well, you you can't control luck unless if you're cheating. So you shouldn't do that. Uh, so that that has had like a pretty positive experience, like a positive effect on my magic playing. I tend not to blame luck, if at all possible. Uh, so occasionally I will, you know, get unlucky and lose because of that, but. You should always look to see what you can improve first 
and then if you truly conclude that you couldn't have done anything, then it's okay to briefly blame luck, but then just carry on with your life. I think that's something that uh, my dad taught me very early on because I think at some point we had a thunderstorm like crack into our roof and he's like, yeah, we couldn't do anything about that. That's just a statistical anomaly. It's not going to happen very often, but you shouldn't get mad about it. You should, you should just fix it, accept it, and get on with your life. That is so awesome. I uh, yeah he yeah yeah my I my father emphasized that very heavily to my sister and I because he's a statistician. <laughs> um, and in addition, uh, one of my friends, uh, you may or may not have heard of him, Alex Magelton. He's from this area as well. Uh, when I was starting like competitive magic in Maryland, he was one of the guys who had done reasonably well by that point. He had already had a GP top eight or two. So I talked to him a bunch. And to this day, I think I've learned a bunch from him. But at the same time, I've maybe helped him <laughs> in some small portion as well. Uh, to he He's still sort of salty that I have a GP one before him, but he does have seven GP top eights. So yeah. it sort of evens out, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what did you learn from him? Uh, what, what were the things that Just, you... The, one of the first competitive decks I chose was Affinity in Standard, and he knew a lot about Affinity. In fact, he's had the same Markbound Ravagers since 2004 that have gotten him to multiple GP top eights. He just has, he has the same ones. They're like pieces of paper now if you shuffle them. Mm -hmm. All of the cards in his deck are basically pieces of paper, including <laughs> the new cards. He has to shuffle them so thoroughly, otherwise they're marked. Um, but yeah, I learned how to play Affinity from him. I learned a bunch of things about competitive magic from him. But I think it's finally at the point that Maybe we're sort of similar in skill level that it's more productive that, you know, we just figure things out together. Yeah, the thing about, uh, I guess my question is sort of flawed too, because mentor always assumes there's some kind of hierarchical relationship that this person is more experienced than you. But oftentimes I find too that you can have a mentor and you can be a mentee, but the mentee can also contribute things to that the mentor to help the mentor grow so it's a two-way relationship not just like i'm helping you you know i think that's usually the best type of uh mentorship re relationship so what are some ways that you think you've helped him become a better player yeah i it's, it's actually very interesting you bring up that point i've noticed that reading biographies of certain like famous scientists uh almost universally if they love teaching they say yeah teaching kids sometimes they ask a question in a very interesting way that you've never thought of before and they'll lead to some research idea that's completely unrelated to what they're asking but just the thought of this unique way of perceiving something is uh interesting and i think maybe i did that for alex at some point but um nowadays i think we just have sort of different ideas on how deck building or deck choice should be done. 
and it's just good to have a bunch of sources of information I think like that right right so Alex is still playing magic today yeah uh, he and I are still on the same pro tour team sort of neither of us are qualified for Sydney uh, it's East West Bowl which we have Seth Manfield Ari is joining our team for the next pro tour and you just have like a bunch of great people who are all very good at the game and everyone's very polite so it's 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 pretty great this is something that i really uh i really want to ask is uh you know these magic teams right i i know that for me i've, I've never gone to that level in magic but i've done teams for other types of activities um I mean, how do you guys go about creating these teams? I know it's it can be a little bit impromptu, right? But but are there things that you guys or you look for as you're assembling a team of players to to practice, play test, and discuss magic with? So interestingly enough, the reason this team is called East West Bowl is a lot of the people live on the East Coast in the DC area, and a lot of the people live on the West Coast in California, and. I don't know if you know this, it's also a Keen Peel skit called East West Ball. Right. Yeah, I, I know. I, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Uh, but the, it, the it, thing it that, is a yeah. direct reference to that because <laughs> Alex played that skit so many times. <laughs> it, it has to be like, I've probably seen that skit probably like almost close to 70 times now because of him. It's like burned into <laughs> your, in your, into your, your retina. Yes, your it, memory, is. Right? It, it, it is. It is. The guy with the jackhammer as his name, and I, I don't know. It, it's just pretty crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, our, our team is basically born out of friendship, not out of picking people because they are... A, I mean, everyone has a minimum level of competency at Magic, but we didn't pick people like that to begin with, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It was just a bunch of guys on the West Coast led by Mark Jacobson, and then a bunch of guys on the East Coast sort of led by Alex, and we just decide, decided to join forces for that Pro Tour. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the pieces accidentally fell together because the Californians figured out how to build that blue-red Odrazi aggro deck in Modern, and th three people top-aided on our team. I don't know, like... that. Expecting any team to have three people top eight a pro tour on that team is unrealistic, especially for a newly formed team. Yeah, that sort of set the expectations way too high. Yeah, I guess, yeah. but uh, it it worked for that pro tour. Mm -hmm. And then Seth joined our team after that because I don't know. I guess the team he was on for that PT sort of fell apart. But he also is from Maryland. We've known Seth for. Well, we've always known that he was really good, even when he was like 15 or 16, because that's when he topped his first GP. But it just made sense from a geographic standpoint for him to join us. Uh, okay. So basically, this team was born out of friendship. It wasn't really born out of trying to, you know, optimize or break things, you know, whatever. And I think that's sort of counterintuitive to most people, but. Team chemistry is a very real thing. If you get someone who's like supposedly great at magic, but is just very disruptive, I don't think it actually makes the team function better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, at the end of the day, is this somebody that you actually want to 
play magic with or somebody that you want to actually have a conversation with right that's is that's, it someone that you want to hang out and you know eat dinner eat lunch you know just talk with mm-hmm. you should really ask yourself that right and right now i'm perfectly happy to hang out with basically all of those guys on that team you know you know eat dinner talk hang out for a while and you know it's just great mm-hmm. it's great that i can feel comfortable with basically everyone on that team right that's that's amazing. I think that's kind of the intersection of uh, uh, quote unquote work, which is magic. You want to do well in a tournament, and life, which is you know you want to hang out with a group of friends who have similar interests and are just cool to hang out with, right? So right, right. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, okay. And are there? Oh man, we talked about so many things, but are there <laughs> any specific things that magic you think has? I mean, obviously, I, I, I can I can go th- back to this conversation. I can see that you have an incredible passion and joy for the game. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. And you're also incredibly self-aware and reflect on things. Um, so this, this question may be sort of uh, overkill, but what are like some of the big ways that magic has enriched your life? Because I'm assuming it has, right? So what are some ways that yeah. magic has... has uh, made you a better person or just made you happier or like, however you want to define it yeah it's weird when I was younger I would argue I was not the best at socializing but I think magic to a large degree helped me figure out how to talk to people how to meet people and you know just I guess how to interact well in society it wasn't the easiest for me I think, especially during high school and to some degree during college. Um, but magic definitely helped there. And honestly, meeting all of the great people I've met, it's it's been sort of unbelievable. Okay. And what are some ways that you think magic has negatively impacted your life? <laughs> oh, uh, I think that period right after college where I was basically not doing anything but playing magic online was probably I could have done things better with my life back then but uh, at least I've gotten through that period and I realize that now uh, basically the, the long and short of it is it's very clear to me now that I didn't really do well at, at high level magic until I had sort of a balanced life going on if that makes any sense and that, that that's sort of counterintuitive. I think a lot of people think that the professionals are really good because they do nothing but play magic. But I think the opposite is true. They know how to do things in an efficient ma- manner and still have a real life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that I, I, I call the paradox of magic, which is uh, paradoxically, it's when magic isn't everything in your life that when you have a balanced view on things or a mindset, that's when you actually end up doing better at magic when it isn't everything. So, right. Okay. Um, but I mean, having said that, even though you did grind a lot of, uh, magic online during that time when there were no deck lists, uh, it, it still shaped who you are. Right. So, I mean, that had to have helped you become a, a, a better player or got you to the stage. Right. So, Right. There, there's no doubt that, in my mind, that if I hadn't done that, I probably would not have 
qualified for as many pro tours, if any, or done well in Seattle. Uh, I think there is a building block experience. It's just that if I had known what I had known back then, if I, if I had known what I know now back then, I could have done things a lot better. A, with my life, and B, with learning to play Magic better. I see. So maybe there were things that, going back, if you could, uh, if we all had a time machine, that you, we could yeah. be, more, be more efficient at something, right? You could right. get better Precisely. ROI. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. So let's, let's kind of switch gears again and talk about sort of forward-looking. Uh, you know, obviously, you wanna you wanna try to qualify and get to the you wanna try to level up here in your status. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's go even a little bit beyond that. I mean, where do you see yourself with Magic in, let's say, three to five years? Well, I'm somewhat worried with how Wizards of the Coast is handling certain things. I would like the game to be around in three to five years. If it is. I hope we will still be, you know, maybe not playing every single Grand Prix that rolls around. Maybe just the ones that are relatively close to me. But I would still like to be involved with some sort of high-level magic. Maybe not, as I said, not going to every Grand Prix, but hopefully playing, you know, one or two Pro Tours a year and just still getting to talk to all of the great people that I know that still are playing high-level magic. I see. So for you, it would be more around a uh, qualification slash participation goal of playing yeah. in a certain amount of GPs and not getting too crazy and playing every GP because the, the, the policies yeah, I, now don't encourage that or incentivize that, right? It, 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 th- this past year, it, it's not the wisest financial decision I've embarked upon. I'm going to say that. <laughs> uh, I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where I can do that for this year, but the amount of traveling I did, I think I'm close to not really wanting to do that again next year, or in any other f- years in the future, really. <laughs> and it's not just a financial, right? Because I remember when we were talking on Facebook, uh, it's also just the grind the grind aspect, right? Like, you have to fly here for this weekend, and uh, I would imagine that all of it takes a, a toll at some point. It, it does. Uh, I've actually been fortunate. I basically did not get sick at all this year, but I can very easily imagine a scenario where I got sick like every other week. Just I just got fortunate, I think. Very, very fortunate to not get very sick very often. I see. So that's uh that's good, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh and and I mean you had an interesting comment there about, you know, if magic still continues the way it does or exists. Do you have any predictions or feelings about how the game would potentially evolve, like in terms of the the game itself, and maybe in terms of the competitive structure around the games? I'm not a huge fan with a lot of the organized play decisions that they've made in some of the years. To me, it shows a lack of understanding of what a professional Magic player actually needs, A, to live, and B, like support-wise. I I guess those are sort of the same thing, but when they tried to cut a bunch of the Platinum things at that Pro Tour that Steve Rubin won, there was a huge backlash, and it almost overshadowed Steve Rubin's win. 
which you know I think that that's terrible for him because he should get his spotlight like he won a pro tour it shouldn't be the it shouldn't be overshadowed by the fact that Wizards decided to announce this thing right then and it affects it actually affects him negatively because he hit platinum from winning that pro tour I think that's just ridiculous mm-hmm. but they, they did cycle back on that decision but I just think the decision process that led to that decision in the first place hasn't been changed so stuff like this will just continue to happen from an engineering standpoint all you did was take the product of whatever black box and change that product the black box is still there it's still going to produce awful things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a band-aid right it's a band-aid that came about as a lot of hashtagging and a lot of uh pleas yeah a lot of like people like uh like kibler and finko writing spending time to come out and write blog articles and putting the pressure on and that and that's just to fix a, a local problem like a like one specific incident so that's not to get on my soapbox but and i'm not in this world <laughs> really but it's not a good look for <laughs> for anybody it's, like it's not it's yeah. not right yeah, yeah um but i mean knowing what you know and talking to friends that you have in this circle uh do you have some kind of like mental idea about how it will it will shift, uh, whether for good or bad or the same? Like, like you've you've got to have some feeling about how right. things will play out, right? My current perception is they don't understand how the professionals want to sort of do things, and they don't understand really what motivates them to actually come to tournaments. Because by removing a bunch of those fees, they're actually disincentivizing them to come to tournaments. So I don't have a good feeling about the next few years unless they come out and announce something that's great. Right. Uh, how would you respond to this? And I'm just taking the devil's advocate here because I, I read a little bit about this. Um, the devil's advocate position is that uh, they're not doing a great job of marketing the pros in the first place like a lot of casual players may not know the names and it impacts a fairly small group of people uh, and and the third devil's advocate argument would be uh, no one can really make a living playing magic anyway and this would allow them to funnel uh, cash or prizes towards like being a more top-heavy payout is there any is there any like logic to that or do you think that's just uh, uh, still unrealistic to to assume that position. From from a pure esport perspective, I I understand what they're trying to do because the like first place prizes in a lot of the big esport tournaments are much bigger and like flashier. The thing is, they don't realize about those games is that those teams are sponsored by like companies, the esport teams, like I. I know, especially in South Korea, it's not uncommon to have like a Samsung or an LG or you know whatever team, and just have them get paid by that company to live their life. That doesn't happen in Magic, so it, it, I I think it just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between Magic and like StarCraft Two. Right. No, not Magic players are not wearing a. A patch that says poker yeah. stars. You know, they're not wearing a, a, yeah, a, a, yeah, a jersey I, yeah. full tilt poker when they play, right? So Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really uh, a really good point. I think people 
don't really understand sometimes that like comparisons are only valid when you're comparing apples to apples when you're right and and, yep. and also the product itself i think the esport if you think of magic as an esport and in which wizards itself calls it an esport which is uh in some sense laughable um the, the it's not the, a very good esport actually right to watch right to to watch it was to, not designed to be an esport that's why mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was in the 90s yeah. when you and i found uh Revised uh, decks in a in a store that didn't sell video games. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, yep. Uh, so I mean, this is this might be just speculation on my part, but I'm wondering if you have any feelings about how the game itself would potentially evolve. I have no idea about that. I know R and D basically is really management does not touch R and D, so I think the the game itself will basically continue to be fine forever. It's just the organized play aspects of it may not line up where I would prefer them to be. Okay. Okay. So they're kind of like two uh two heads. The the Yeah. Okay. The the, the I I think R&D in general does a very good job of developing and designing magic cards. I'm I know a few of those guys from before when they were competitive players. And I think they're doing a great job, and I really like most of them. And I, I don't see why any reason R and D needs to change. I think the organized play di- division is where I have my issues. I see. So I mean, hopefully something can be can be done there. But uh, you know, just in my experience uh, working in corporations, the changes always have to come from the top. And uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not the most optimistic, as I said, but. I, I can still hope for the best. I just don't expect it to happen that often. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's let's conclude with one question. That yep. it's going to be a little bit out of left field, but this is kind of an experiment. Uh, if someone was listening to this podcast right now with with you and I, like you know, you Jarvis, you, uh, and they're a new player who just wants to get into maybe competition for the first time, what would you tell him or her? Um, try to find someone who is friendly and who you think is better than you and is patient. The, the quickest way to improve is through the graciousness and patience of a person who is better than you. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Uh, I wish I heard that when <laughs> when I got started, instead of just scrubbing yeah. and not talking to anybody in the in the car. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, well, Jarvis, uh, thank you so much for spending all of, all of this time to to talk to me. I think there's just so many things that in our conversation that uh, I found incredibly valuable, and I think will be incredibly valuable for our listeners as well. Uh, you've actually made me think about a lot of things outside of magic as well. And I am yeah. super glad that I had a chance and you took time out of your schedule to to do this. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Jarvis. And uh, I hope to talk to you again in a future podcast. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me, James. <laughs>